bitch is bad and bullshit. Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. I'm Erin. I'm Erica. And I'm Amy. And guys, it's been a couple weeks. I it has. You. Erica's been uh, laid up at home. Uh, like, literally, okay? I feel like my body's falling apart. It's called old age. <laughs> I Aww. know. I'm getting old. Well, you're back in action just in time for the good weather, so. I like that pun, Amy. <laughs> it was unintentional, but I'm totally taking the credit for it. Oh, look at your nails. They look fab. Thank you. Yeah. I like that color. Look at you. And the toenails are just popping. You're ready. I, I, You're not I ready also am ready for spring. Yeah. Oh, my God. Gearing yes. up. By the way, Ottawa Ottawa was caught unawares. <laughs> I can fairness, tell. It's been garbage weather. <laughs> so, But it was so funny because everybody was like, oh, <laughs> where's my spring stuff? It's true. <laughs> Very true. By the way, I was at Rideau yesterday and I saw like new spring lines. Ooh, boring as oh. fuck. Yeah. Mm. I went into Aritzia, right? And I'm like, okay, this place will have some, you know, you know, yeah, banging. A little bit you know, different. A little yeah. bit diff- nope. <laughs> Pale, white, brown, sand. A lot of beige. A lot of beige. Mm. Like, I'm like, obviously, I'm going to have to be shopping online. It's a lot of like here are the Hamptons colors, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's it's depressing. Yeah. I mean, neutrals and minimalism in general are like super in right now. Yeah, just like as a way of being and mm-hmm. like pushing that capsule wardrobe way of life. Um, this sounds very white. It's I mean, it's super. Yeah, it's super gentrification white. I can't wear any. I it's not whiteness aside. I can't wear any of that stuff due to clumsiness. So I feel particularly offended that this is where the trends are going. It's, it's more just like there's also a lot of ruffles, and I cannot do a ruffle to you save don't, my soul. You don't look like the ruffle. Type. I always like the shirts and dresses with ruffles, and I always think, you know what, I'm gonna try this on, and then I try it on, and I look like such an asshole. And I was like, well, why didn't I just do myself in the first place? Ah, I'm sure it's not. It's that just bad. not your. It is that. Bad. It is just not your style. Nah. That's fair. That's yeah. yeah. I don't. I don't get ruffle vibes from you. Yeah, I don't either. It's gotta be black like my heart. <laughs> oh, <laughs> ouch! <laughs> that used to be Love my don't line. live here anymore. <laughs> that used to be my line every time I ordered my coffee, and now yeah. I don't drink coffee, so I'm like really having an existential crisis. <laughs> I like my green tea <laughs> clear like my conscience. I honestly like the on Thursdays and Fridays walk around thinking hmm what am I gonna talk about in the intro so I got one. Oh, I'm ready okay Hit me up. so um we're not gonna talk about it today but black people were winning in some ways and losing in others this week the last couple weeks yeah Shh, Kendrick Lamar I know that's super cool Pulitzer I just like, I must say, I thought his last album was more Pulitzer-like. Yes. It's my favorite. It's still my favorite. But I don't think that anything. many audiences would get it to that full extent. Mm, I think people got it at the time. It was really talked about. But I just, 
as an institution, I think the Pulitzer's just like really behind the times. And so they're just yes. like late to the game. And this is what they could honor this well, year. Well, a black woman is now like well, yeah. head of the voting committee. So that um, kind of opens it up. I did read the thing this morning. It was like one of those like tweets that seemed like very clickbaity is like, oh, audiences, classical audiences weren't happy that Kendrick Lamar won the Pulitzer. But the two other people he was up against are super stoked and like see what they had to say. And I was like, I wonder if they would be having this conversation if they had won with Kendrick. But then I clicked through and it wasn't awful. They were like, you know what? Someone pointed out to me how complex and meaningful his lyrics and arrangements are and that gave me a a deeper appreciation for his work and now i can see why he is deserving of it they're like i appreciate his work and whatever and like from people who compose classical music i think that is a like quite meaningful because like they just come at it from a different angle yeah, I mean, I, I can I can see that. I don't know if I Amy's really not. want a Dolo credit there. <laughs> I think well, if I mean, you like, do any like classical music, they're not going to like hip hop. Just by, that's like, not definition. necessarily true. And actually, like a lot of hip hop arranging, like does take from classical music. Sure. So I don't, and and that's the shitty thing is like maybe it is a one like it's a one way street. Like hip hop appreciates all areas of music and is like like you know borrows hip- and reinvents and like hip hop like is the most flexible like, music totally, of yeah. all con- yeah. of all time yeah. and i think that's what's so amazing about it and that's what was so exciting about jay-z's blueprint three when he came out with um num, 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 what's what's the name of that song anyway um the first <laughs> cut uh, now uh, now i'm drawing a blank but anyway it's it's yeah. very much a jazz arrangement and yeah. when and i saw him in concert from that album Mm. and he brought a full band Mm -hmm. and if you know anything about hip-hop and going to hip-hop concerts that's not usual Mm -hmm. and it's Mm -hmm. expensive as hell yeah that's part of it for sure yeah Yeah. but the point is is that he was taking hip-hop to a more complex place and i think that that as much as people complain about the little uzi verts or whoever There is all the little right. There is a lot of room. This Mm. is why whenever people are like, oh, hip hop's not the same anymore. It's shit. And I'm just like Kendrick Lamar's shit. Mm. Nas is shit. Like, you know, like there are many other artists who are pushing really interesting things. And I really love the rise of the femc right now. Like Mm. the female hip hop artists. Mm -hmm. I love it. And so I think it has, it'll morph and it'll grow and it'll mature and it'll, I think of hip hop as like late teens right now. Like mm. you're, you just graduated high school, you're 18, 19, you're going out in the world. And so you have a vast array of, of music. Take grime from the UK, for example. Mm. That's a completely different sound. Mm. And I love how regional it is too. Anyway, that's my and Beyonce like I just I yeah. I don't even like <laughs> Baychella for real <laughs> wow uh, did okay first of I all did you guys see it I saw part yeah it. yeah little Almost snippets yeah not all of it, it was I, was like, I don't I, can't I want I want to watch it all, was but two I hours it. of your life yeah, okay yeah. so I'm still willing to see it if I could find a good version it's quite something yeah. I mean she rewrote the rules of everything yeah everything um, laney gossip has a very good podcast 
okay, good. I can't wait now. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. good. Yeah. I like lady gossip. <laughs> All right, so let's get into it. Got a lot to cover. Yeah, fam. Okay, let's do it. This week in feminism, by now we're all aware that Cynthia Nixon is running to become governor of New York State. Hello. She is currently engaged in a primary challenge where she is challenging incumbent governor Andrew Cuomo to be the candidate for the Democrats. Nixon announced her candidacy in mid-March, which was followed by some critiques of her being just another celebrity running for public office without any real experience. And the insensitive comments from the New York City Council Speaker, Christine Quinn, which referred to Nixon as a, quote, unqualified lesbian. Ouch. What sets Nixon apart from other celebrities who have run for office is that she has been politically engaged for some time, basically since she was on Sex in the City. Says Nixon, quote, we've had such a sense of like, oh, we're a deep blue state. We're democratic. I'm sure those people in Albany are doing the right thing and taking care of us. But New York is the single most unequal state in the entire country, and it's become more and more unequal under Andrew Cuomo. The governor presents himself as a progressive champion, but really nothing could be further from the truth. He slashed taxes on the wealthiest, and he slashed services on everybody else. He's lost $25 billion from state revenue with these tax cuts, and we need that money. Think of all the things we are craving here whether it's funding our schools or fighting for single-payer health care or renewable energy or fixing the subways or ending the school-to-prison pipeline. Since launching her campaign, Nixon has, hasn't made many policy statements that significantly differ from those of Governor Cuomo, except for supporting more complete le- legalization of marijuana. This and other things uh, Nixon has been critical... This and other things Nixon has been critical about have pushed Cuomo further to the left on things like legalization, making sure that the Democratic caucus in Albany is singular and united instead of having a little section that is more independent. And actually, he has now decided that he is going to be granting parolees the right to vote by executive order. Uh, In Nixon's statement about legalization, she focused squarely on the disproportionate effects of criminality experienced by black people. She also appeared on the Wendy Williams show as a means to engage black women voters as she understands their importance to the Democratic Party and voting, saying, quote, black women are going to stop showing up for the Democratic Party if the Democratic Party doesn't start showing up for them. Woo woo. Erica, you've been saying this so many times on this very podcast. I'm about to follow her on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The centrist Democrat is just not very popular right now. No. And they really shouldn't be. You know, I I love that she's doing a Bernie Sanders and pushing him to the left, uh, just like Bernie did to Hillary Clinton, because Hillary Clinton started off as a centrist Democrat. Yep. She only found her um, her progressiveness uh, like in one of the first primary debates. That's when she's like, oh, yes, I'm a progressive. We're like, no, you're not. (laughs) So I feel like the Cuomo's are in the same sort of the Cuomo's are like the Clintons of New York. And so I feel as though um, her pushing him left is necessary, to be honest, if he wants to win. I also I love I love her in this race. She came out and she gave no fucks. And I love that. Number one. Number two, she's right about black women. She came out of the gate talking about um, 
school to prison pipelines, the disproportionate amount of black and brown people in jail for marijuana use, especially, but drug use in general. She came out of the gate with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I'm excited. This is exciting, not because I love her as a politician, but I love the fact that we're talking about this out in the open. And I also love the fact that to me, um, we need more voices like this and she's using her platform to do it. And that's what we always ask. Now, in terms of black women, the Democratic Party has been taking black women for granted for way too long. And sometimes we need to sit shit out. We really do. I really do think not voting is a strategy. And when we sit it, when we sit out of voting because we're not going to vote for the republicans because they have nothing for us but when you only have one party who is even thinking about you in their sort of national platform then you need to show them that if you're not there that they suffer so i'm here for it i'm just here for this story right now until she fucks up i I think the boldest thing is that it's uh, the fact that there even is a primary, which is like yeah. not usually, I mean, it's rarely um, the case. And to, I think it should become a given. Like, I think it's super valuable for party renewal. And I mean, no matter the party to have those kinds of challenges, even if there isn't going to be an upset. Um, but because it, I mean, especially in a two party system, right? Like it's so frustrating. I imagine for Americans, it could be kind of bound um, to, uh, you know, for progressives to be bound to the Democratic Party and not really have a platform to to have these discussions except for when there is a turnover. So, it, you know, I hope that trend continues. Yeah, it, there was a, a primary for um, an Illinois uh, ho- federal House seat um, to Dan Lipinski, and he is... Ba- quote unquote a centrist democrat but he's also anti-abortion mm. and he ended up winning the primary because mm. it's in a, he was in a more i think right rural area of illinois and not like chicago but uh it was it was close in the in the primary mm-hmm. and so people weren't sure like how it was going to turn out and i think that you know there's a lot of questions about the future of the democratic party and how they need to move away from the center and go further to the Mm -hmm. left and i think that we're finally seeing people interested and committing to pushing that Mm -hmm. regardless of whether they're someone who's already in an elected seat or willing to be a primary challenger Mm -hmm. i mean it's great for the parties as well like it's great for fundraising it's great for drawing attention to issues it's great for like you want to have a deep bench you want to have a lot of people interested um who could be you know, ele- who are electable. Like, it, I don't think it hurts the Democratic Party brand to have these discussions. I actually think it really helps I to show, like, the richness of what is informing I think policy. had they had those primaries in the last election, then Hillary Clinton would have known where to show up. At the end of the day, those primaries tell you a lot about individual counties and areas um, and the discrepancy between... For example, um, like we say, in New York and an Illinois county or rural Illinois county, it gives them more information about the vo- the Democratic voters in that this particular area or in that particular area. 
And I think that the fact that they don't do primaries is a missed opportunity in that mm-hmm. in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it's it's great for women and like minority quote unquote candidates to have more open elections instead of having incumbents maintain their role. And I mean, it's really restrictive. Um, and I mean, any elect any election experience is obviously helpful. The more times you run, the better off you are. It's not, it, you know, it's not that you're always running to win. Um, and people should always have that mm-hmm. in mind that you're running to start a debate and a discussion and to like, you know, even ch- to get exposure and to build your, you know, your your brand. I really hate saying Name that. Recognition. A, yeah, I hate saying that. But in it's a, a brand, context, like, but 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 yeah, like who your voice, your political voice, and yeah. being yeah. known to the electorate. Um, so I think more opportunities to get people to come in, um, and you know, take space in that political arena, win or lose, is always like valuable. Here's my problem with the Democratic Party, however. <laughs> The Democratic Party, in my opinion, has a deeper bench than the Republicans. They have some great, great, like, politicians. If I, like, like, especially women and minority politicians. Mm -hmm. They have a bench. But they don't tap that bench because it seems to me that the Democratic structure is still very old. So, for example, they're gassing up this Kennedy dude. And I'm just like, where the hell did he come from? And what does he just has a last name like fly by night? Yeah. And and he he said something the other day that I was I thought was way off base. It might have been about drugs or something like that. But it sounded very centrist Democrat. Mm -hmm. And that's not what they need right now. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing is that these old institutions don't recognize when times change and they can't change with them right because it, i mean the whole every institution is after self-preservation yeah and like maintaining its existence and so it's inherently not but, looking for that but here's the thing is, is that that ability to be more flexible is part of self-preservation. I too. I I, th- I think so, but it requires a different lens, and so like I think in the yeah. moment it's oh, like for very sure. reactionary. Yeah. And so that's the. But they don't even do that. Impetus. I mean, the Democratic Party should have had its own kind of like like in autopsy after 2016, mm-hmm. because what it seems like to me was they put a centrist when a somebody more left should have been running. Mm-hmm. I, I I'm not saying Bernie, by the way. Sure. <laughs> and I think that like <laughs> we know you're that not. We're no you're not. <laughs> well, I don't I don't cape for for um for specific um political parties or political ideologies because I'm really more interested in issues. Yeah. And I vote on the issue. I don't vote. People call me a liberal and I'm like there's some conservative parts of me. Sure. You know? And, you know, nobody would dare call me a conservative. I understand that. <laughs> um, but I care about voting for the issues, and hence why I'm, I'm an independent. I don't believe in caping for any party, to be honest. They should be, they should be trying to get you. I feel like it's, it's backwards. And let's go back to the grassroots. Mm-hmm. I think the grassroots, I'm, I'm really excited by the grassroots of the Democratic Party. And I don't think Cynthia Nixon, in a way she is. Yes. Of course she has. She She's has representing celebrity. their views. Right. Right. Yeah, she seems pretty tapped in. I mean, just even like 
her she, she's taking different pledges about where she's going to get her money from not accepting money from big oil and mm-hmm. like taking like environmental stand. i think she's like really like linked in with environmental network environmentalist networks yeah. and certainly like education was like her area yeah. of like lobbying and yeah. activism for many yeah. years so I, I actually do think she comes from a more organic despite her celebrity like a more organic place than most because she's yeah. done the work yeah, that's it right yep. i think that's really like i think that's super telling like for people listening to this it's not like showing up at the right places but it's actually like being there and like talk- doing talking to people pe- yeah yeah, like, like really engaging. When she was doing some of her education um, activism, she was there talking to other parents because she was lobbying on behalf of like, well, because of her children mm-hmm. in the school system and she mm-hmm. wasn't happy with what she was seeing. So she's talking to people who have the same frustrations she has and she's seeing them from you know, the perspective of someone maybe who doesn't have as much money as mm-hmm. she does and as much privilege. And so she's able to like talk to these people on like a very... Like I don't want to say basic, but like co- comparable level because they they share the same value. Yeah, no, she's like relating her struggles yeah. with with folks, and it's and, and it's earnest. It's coming in a, like from an honest place, and that's what makes her authentic. Yeah. yeah. Um, one thing that I think is really that the Democrats and I guess going into Canada's election next year is you know right now we're recording this on a Saturday and. The Liberal Convention's going on, mm-hmm. and they had a lot of. Is pol- it this weekend? It's yes. this weekend. They yeah. Oh, like a lot of their. We'll have a lot policy, to talk about. <laughs> a lot of their policy stuff seems to be going again more to the left from the grassroots. Yeah, um, the two things I heard were decriminalizing sex work, and which I mean I don't know. And decriminalizing small amounts of drugs. Yeah, and decriminalizing. You know what? Care. Fuck the yeah. liberals and their drug policy. Okay. Any- but you know, because <laughs> we'll talk about it when we talk about right. But but shifting. just just I just I just want to say if you're not ready to look at the racial disparities yeah. with drugs, then you got nothing. Yeah. And so anyway, there was a Vice article about this this week. Okay, that's the only reason. Next, sorry. Anyway, so <laughs> I think that you know, centerist parties really need to are being pushed to the left, and I think that's good. I mean, because I think that these policies are generally good ideas, but it's also important because like once you're governing, it's a different story. Unless you have a majority government in the House of Commons, in the Senate, in the House of Representatives, it's hard to push legislation through without major changes and major concessions. Yeah. So mm-hmm. the further left you start, you're going to get pulled over mm-hmm. to the center mm-hmm. from the right. And I think that you need to be more audacious Right. Yeah. You know what? Once you get to like, if you start in the center, you get pulled to the right, and you're like, okay, cool. I've got a conservative bill now. Mm -hmm. Well, Mm -hmm. it's it's the old adage: you shoot for the stars, and you end up in the clouds. Yeah. It's the same idea. You're right. I'm glad you said that. Is that you got to start out way left. You got to scare some people. You got to be realistic and <laughs> yeah. understand that you're gonna you're get gonna pulled get back. pulled. But where you end up may be left of if instead. Oh. Left of what you would have gotten if you if started. started in the center. Yeah. Yeah, yes, totally. that's a great point, actually. Totally. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I don't look know. at this robust very, discussion. Very, very excited to follow this race. I'm not gonna lie. I so am I. There's like a like a story with her every day, like every other day. I love it. And Cuomo and like endless amount of like reaction gifts from Sex in the City. So. Yes. Oh my gosh, that's gonna be awesome. <laughs> We're all Mirandas, right? Yeah. Oh. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 I'm more Miranda than anybody. Yeah. I'm not. 
like don't I found, fight. Don't fight it. It's no, it's great. No, I won't. It's great to be a Miranda. Because Carrie was a little bit too, too much of a whiny, privileged, flighty. entitled, yeah. flighty, flaky woman. Yeah. And I hate flaky. If there's yeah. anything I hate, it is flaky. I've been flaky. I understand. <laughs> People are flaky, but you know, like I'll always come back. You know what I mean? Mm. Like kind of thing. Totally. But Carrie, Charlotte, no. Hard, hard pass. Hard, hard pass, pass on Charlotte. And Kim Cattrall, she's just a one in a million, I guess. <laughs> There's a side. I don't think anyone can be Samantha all the time. I'm sure no, there are people, I, but I, I think it's a rarity. It's I like think so, too. Yeah. And carry it like she does. That's the whole thing. Yeah. Our next topic is this concept of the glass cliff. So in 1951, Doris Buck, who becomes Doris Anderson once she gets married, um, is a fiction writer and aspiring journalist. She uh, takes a an entry-level advertising promotion job at Chatelaine Magazine, which we've spoken about before on the podcast. And within six years, she's named editor-in-chief and would become one of the most successful and significant editors in Canadian media. During her tenure, which lasted into the 1970s, she transformed a polite ladies' journal into a fiery feminist news magazine. Um, <laughs> maybe for its time running stories <laughs> on abortion wage inequality racism domestic violence immigration birth, con- birth control and political representation I don't remember the Chatelaine did this Chatelaine exist because I don't remember it that's why I, that's why I made that <laughs> like where was okay, but like, frankly when did you actually read Chatelaine okay yeah. I flipped th- at I, the doctor's you know, office okay where I did not see those <laughs> articles so I don't know what anybody's there, talking I don't about. trust okay. my recollection it's all, and I guess it's all relative too let's yeah the, and it is Canada <laughs> and, and Canada obviously cannot take any sort of real talk on issues so I guess so anyway the then president of Chatelaine's then publisher, McLean Hunter, uh, sorry, the president of Chatelaine's then publisher, McLean Hunter, Floyd, Floyd Chalmers, reportedly said of Anderson, quote, what I like about Doris is that she looks like a woman, acts like a lady, and works like a dog. Sweet God. However, <sighs> as much as Chalmers says he liked Anderson, he did not reflect that in her salary. Anderson was paid less than half the salary of the male editor-in-chief of McLean's magazine. She made $23,000 to his $53,000 annually. Women now hold many of the most powerful positions in Canadian media. In addition to Chatelaine, Elle Canada, and Fashion Magazine, they top the mastheads at many of Canada's best-known magazines and newspapers, including McLean's, The National Post, The Ottawa Citizen, Toronto Life, The Walrus, Huffington Post Canada, sorry, Huff Post Canada, the Montreal Gazette, the Toronto Sun, Metroland Media Toronto, the Hill Times, and the Literary Review of Canada. Women have never had more control and decision-making power in shaping news and current affairs coverage in Canada. This rise in female leadership, unfortunately, happens to coincide with the industry's free fall. That women have reached the upper echelons of the new media during this time of tumult means that they have reached what psychologists and sociologists have dubbed the glass cliff. While the glass ceiling refers to the unacknowledged barriers that prevent the advancement of white women, people of color, and those from other marginalized groups. The glass cliff describes a related and equally nefarious systemic hurdle. 
It's the observed phenomenon of women being appointed or elected to leadership positions in business and politics in precarious times or following a crisis, generally or usually one created by a man. Women are not the only groups to have faced discrimination when it comes to leadership roles, and data shows the glass cliff phenomenon applies to other outsider groups. Consider that it was during the global economic meltdown of 2008 that the U.S. elected Barack Obama to be the country's first African-American president. We're always cleaning up white people's shit. <laughs> I mean, I think... And they take big ones. Yeah, and, and women definitely um, do too. Um, I think my first Beaverton article was about how... Uh, conservatives yet again elect a woman to clean up their shit when they elected Rona Ambrose as the interim leader and then just like drawing the parallels between mm -hmm. her and like what Kim Ca like Kim Campbell's um, yep. like short yep. short stint right like it, it I think that's uh, like such a clear phenomena that you really see I, I haven't thought about it in terms of like journalism and as an industry declining but that like that's actually really stark and you do see even just more uh, women journalists than you did probably in the past, like n not just like mm -hmm. as editors, but just, you know, in like all sorts of beats that were probably male dominated for some time. But um, I think, yeah, I think the the industrial trends are definitely like connected. Okay, here's here's my issue. Is that when women assume these positions, they have a tendency to behave like the white males who preceded them. Mm -hmm. And that's my problem, is that, yes, they come in to clean up the mess, but they are so, like most, a lot of women seem seem to be so interested in being accepted in the upper echelon as, like, leaders that they will um, assume the values and the positioning and et cetera, et cetera, of their male counterparts instead of trying to bring something fresh and new and positive. Um, I can't say that about fashion magazine. I've been really impressed with fashion magazine as of late, but Chatelaine's the same. McLean's recently threw um, uh, an independent journalist under the bus um, who was talking about systemic racism. So to me, it's really just musical chairs. Now, if they want to, they just don't want to make that difference. They don't want to change anything. And obviously, the way things have been done before is not working anymore since they're in an industry that's declining. So where is the bravery? Where's the boldness? Where is that? Where? Where? Yeah, it's like what we're seeing in Canada is that we're celebrating women making it, but then doing nothing to... Doing the same thing, so nothing changes. Yeah, but and then they're the ones who get blamed for right. things going under and not going well and things being unsuccessful. But the timing's all part of it, right? Like, if you're coming in as, like, the company you're now in charge of is, you know, lost, all, like, lost a lot of its financial sources and, like, is, you know, un like facing an well, unprecedented, unprecedented yeah. instability, you're not really going to like drum up financing for like the new risky thing that you're going to do or this new innovative thing that like, um, you know, hasn't been done or it taking those leaps. It doesn't have to be big. You can start at the margins and work your way. 
fair. You know, yeah. this could be a multi-pronged, multi-step process. That's why they're in the fucking position. Yeah, but I think if you're like the timeline for your business's survival is so like, you know, short term and actually like with insight that you feel like. And I think that's like how publishing feels right now. Right. Like whether it's news or otherwise, it's like the end is like so imminent. But they've been they've been facing this for 10 years. I agree. I th- I think like, like internal they've internalized this idea of crisis. Right. Yeah, like this digital like I made a comment last week about CBC's new CBC is a good example, too, because because they're, they have their first woman mm. head. Mm ever so i guess we'll have to see what happens we'll have to see what happens but you know when she said oh the most um the biggest challenge is digital i'm like what year is this (laughs) like yeah you're totally right this has been going on for like 12 years honey let's get it together cbc is publicly funded Right, so it's not like they have to worry about a bottom line. It's true, yeah. They're they're well. They th- they say that they do. They say sure, that their like funding is insufficient. Wanna, sure, yes, yeah. But they're not relying solely on that. Uh, mm-hmm. I think a good example of someone who, or a woman who's gone in to make change, is the woman who's now in charge of Vanity Fair, the editor in chief. Yes, yeah, because um, she just put out her f- her first cover at Vanity Fair, which was Lena Waithe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but the one before that, which was still under her purview, but she had no input on because it was coinciding with the release of a movie and uh, the contract had already been signed, was Jennifer Lawrence. Right. And in her letter to, letter to the editor, or letter from the editor in the magazine, she says, oh, cool, like, I didn't do this one. Looking forward to making my own first <laughs> cover. <laughs> no, but she washed her hands of the situation. No, she is amazing. Because I didn't she read didn't that. That's want so good. to be associated with with the status quo. Mm. Exactly. These women have choices. And they're not the popular choices. I'm not saying that they are. I'm not saying that they're not difficult choices. But, you know, when Elaine... Um, when, is it Wentroth? Walter Roth? When she started at Teen Vogue, where do you, th- you don't think Teen Vogue was on the incline, do you? No, definitely. I think, yeah, Team Vogue was considering closing up shop. Exactly. I mean, because, I mean, know that because then they stopped doing print and now they're just online. Which is funny because because Anna Wintour has Mm. been blamed for that decision and that it was a bad decision. Mm. So, in fact, Anna Wintour is a very good example, okay? (laughs) Who, you know, I, I feel like her time has passed. Yes, she, this is a woman who had absolute power over the fashion industry. And what does she do with it? Commercialize Michael Kors into shit? You know <laughs> what I mean? And and this is the thing. Come on. That's her doing. That's true. And now I go into Michael Kors and the brand is ta- it's crap. Right? Mm-hmm. But but my point is is that these women get to positions of power and they do nothing with it but the status quo. So, by the way, when it comes to the Vanity Fair editor, she and um, apparently she and Anna Wintour had like one of a, sh- a shade dust up. It was awesome. I, 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 I want to hear about this uh, shade dust up. Well, um, it involves some somebody said Anna Wintour said something to her and she, you know, something very Devil Wears Prada. And she <laughs> came in with a T-shirt 
and dressed in a way that oh, I she, heard that when she started at yeah, so when she yeah, started at Vanity Fair, yeah, yeah, Condé Nast thing, and and she shaded her. She shaded her. It was yeah, sweet. that's some that's some bullshit. I was just like, I'm here for you. Yeah, that's clearly the reaction of someone who feels insecure about their their position now. And exactly, I think, and and isn't Anna Wintour retiring soon, stepping down soon? I think I heard rumor to that. These rumors have been going on for like a couple years, so it's really hard to say. It it picked back up last week, so who knows? But yeah, I think people like Anna Wintour would say she wasn't preserving the status quo. In fact. Before her, men were making all the money off of uh, this kind of thing and being the influence peddlers. And now it's it's women and she's surrounded herself by other women. Um, and you need they- to recognize when you become the status quo. I think that's what a lot of pe- a lot right. of these a lot of these people don't don't recognize. You've been in power for twenty years mm-hmm. or twenty five years yeah. or whatever. Yeah. You are the status quo. Yeah, they hang on to the fact that they were the first at one point and then let that like whatever. Mm-hmm. British Vogue is more interesting. We're reading <laughs> that. Come on, Anna Wintour. Right, Anna right. Wintour hasn't put it together an exciting cover in years. Mm. But yeah, uh, you do. Amal. Oh yeah, Amal Clooney. Man, oh, okay. come on. I like her, but it wasn't. <laughs> she was. Look how she was dressed. She was in like a nice little summer dress, and I'm like, I'm not interested. But you're, I don't like. I would love to see Amal Clooney in couture, but I don't think that she's really gonna push it too far, just because <gasps> then she'll alienate people. I don't know. I haven't seen the well, spread though, so who knows? But well. But that's I the think risk, I'm all right? I would wear couture. It's it's that you have She'd to get have some... a vision, sure. and that but that's what leadership is: is that you have to have a vision where you want to take the the magazine, your services, whatever, to. Mm-hmm. And yes, you're going to alienate some people, mm-hmm. but you're going to gain new ones. Mm-hmm. And the we are in a time now where the the renewal process from a lot of these establishment, especially in media, is. I, I feel like it's um I those dramatic arts hat um faces like it's crying mm. it's a tragedy right. and yeah, a comedy, comedy. Yeah. and you know watching them like twist around trying to figure out what to do is quite entertaining actually. <laughs> I th- I th- yeah and I just say like get back to like the the central idea a little bit like it is interesting um that. You know, I think like the issue with this idea of like women firsts or like breaking glass ceilings or whatever else is like we rest our idea on like such an individualistic approach. Like it's one woman. And then these women who reach these positions like the Anna Wintour's of the world have this like, you know, over the top identity that's like based on their individual success as being a marker for success for other women. Right. Um, and that's, I think that's really, to- it's really toxic and it's so mm-hmm. like that individualistic drive for like acclaim and like, you know, accolades as being the first restricts people from then like either wanting to pass things on working colla- collaboratively or collectively. And like, it's front it's row toxic. feminism is what it is. It is yeah. front row feminism. It is well, the I- talk there. The idea <laughs> that, you know, like it's the idea that you should be in the front row of the runway show. You should be at the top and forgetting that there are many women Mm -hmm. below you. Mm -hmm. Look how she treated like, okay, first of all, I have how she treated Anne Hathaway. It was so disrespectful. (laughs) (laughs) It was. And we all know it was Anna Wintour. Okay. (sighs) But the fact that 
she didn't even treat her staff with respect yeah. to me that's not a feminist that I want to that I no, want to it, support. It's a capitalist ideal of feminism. Exactly, I think is really what it is. Front row feminism. Yeah. Our next topic is the Quebec mosque shooting that happened in 2017. So, in January 2017, in Quebec, Alexandre Bissonnette entered a mosque in Quebec City and murdered six Muslim men as they prayed. In the months leading up to the event. Bissonnette searched for Donald Trump's name 819 times. He also obsessively checked the Twitter accounts of alt-right figures and Fox News pundits. In the day after the attack, 27-year-old Bissonnette told a police interrogator he committed one of Canada's worst mass shootings in decades to stop refugees from resettling in the country. He believed that they would carry out terror attacks and kill his family. Bissonnette is currently awaiting sentence in a Quebec court after pleading guilty at the end of March to six counts of first-degree murder. Up until the release of his online history, the full extent of his fascination with the radical right wasn't known. Discussions of his motive were often muddled with characterizations of him as a nerdy and isolated young man. Experts say that the evidence that emerged during the trial highlights how in Canada, both society and law enforcement treat Islamists and far-right attackers fundamentally differently a dynamic that downplays the danger of the far right. An Islamist-inspired attack in the United States or Canada is often followed by an instant public demand for information about the assailants' links to terror groups, the media they viewed, and any interactions they had with other extremists. But that's not always the case mm. when it comes to far right attackers such as Bissonnette, whose actions are treated as anomalies that are the product of mental, mental health issues. Danielle Kohler, director of the German Institute on radicalization and de-radicalization studies says, quote, in cases of extreme right-wing violence and terrorism, there is a stronger tendency in Western countries to look for mental health issues and an isolated individual as an explanation. I mean, yeah, I, th I think that's a question a lot of people had on their minds, like, as, as the shooting was happening and, and in the wake of it and the way people were reporting just initially was so starkly different. Um, you always hear questions about how did this uh, when there when there is a um, you know a terrorist attack that is, is so for example the terrorist attack on the hill or the attack on the hill um, the first question everyone was asking was how did this person become radicalized you did not have that conversation um, after the Quebec mosque shooting at all and I'm like so I've been having this conversation no, I, I think, for a year yeah, and a well, half. Well, a lot of us have. Yeah, um, but the mainstream. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Hasn't, and it's like it's it's the, the silence is so shocking and stark. And I'm really happy that the like it's coming through in this court case that's being presented in this way. Like they didn't necessarily have to introduce the Twitter data or this like radicalization piece of it, but it's all there. And I think that's like. Um, super insightful and helpful. My biggest frustration right now is how little coverage, can all things considering what a hugely tragic, violent act this was, uh, you know, pretty rattling terrorism, that this trial is getting so little attention. Like, I think there's just maybe a handful of reporters who've been, like, doing, like, day-to-day -day coverage of it. And just in general, it's not hearing... I think everybody should be talking about this and should be fucking outraged. And also talking about what we now know about the people who are in the mosque um, during the two-minute shooting spree and, and the like bravery and heroism that was shown 
um, you know, like you had um, the the one man who sadly died, um, Ezzedine Sufyan, who like threw himself essentially on the um, like shooter to prevent other people from getting shot and was killed. Like his name should be like on everyone's lips. Well, if if those were if that was a church we'd be having a different conversation. But not a black church. No, not a black <laughs> church, obviously. Wow. <laughs> I like that, Amy. I mean, <laughs> I feel like... Go, go. Anyway, you know what I... You know, we've oh, had, I totally... Have, but, like, it's not like it's... No, no, not, no, no. Imagine, like... You're not wrong. <laughs> Yo, I'm not going to... Uh, you are not wrong. You go ahead. But it's true. Yeah. Um, I think one of the problems, and I wonder if one of the problems is that, is that it happened in Quebec. And I wonder if part of that, like, silence by Anglophone Mm -hmm. media is because it kind of happened in Quebec. And I find that there's this, there's this attitude with Anglophone, with English Canada to French Canada that there's somehow fucked up so no wonder these things happen and then like a little bit of that there's There's definitely the like i mean after the quebec charter and like some of the discussions that have been happening in Mm -hmm. quebec i don't think people are too surprised that this like came out of there but very uh, quebec's gonna quebec yeah yeah yeah, it is very but but also we don't have great reporting in english canada of what happens in quebec in general um, and I think so it's why also can't like fashion a magazine and send a thing. reporter. <laughs> I mean, why can't <laughs> you know ev- I mean? why can't everyone? Why right? can't McLean's? Like, I and, have... and I think even CBC is like that's a radio kind of like they don't like you know or like are right. like they don't l- report as well for English Canada as they do on the French service. Yeah, like the two are very like separated. This is what I've heard. Um, yeah, and uh, there is a si- like there is a siloed effect. But at the same time, you think about like the December fourteen like polytechnic like yep. shooting like we still talk about that we know the names of the victims it's like a huge marker i don't know how long it took until we actually commemorated that but you know it's there's again it, there's no reason why we shouldn't be talking about this and again here's someone who is influenced on like a global level by various forces and in fact is saying i wish i'd killed more people like like the thing like the things that are coming out through this are just so disturbing disturbing yeah i almost want to say outrageous but they like i don't think he's an out like outlier either and that's why i think we should be really concerned ah and that is the difference between us and like okay so uh, the language the language and it's in quebec and and you know English Canada's attitude towards Quebec I think that's part of it Mm -hmm. part of it is that the victims were Muslim Mm -hmm, like you know I'm not going to sugarcoat that shit no if these were white victims oh we'd be raising 10 million dollars for them so I mean let's not get that twisted and the Canadian media is culpable because the amount of time they've spent on Humboldt and not on this mass murder because that's what it is yeah they're they're not even, even if it's not an act of terrorism it's a mass it, murder exactly for sure. it's, a, it's like literally this guy went on a killing spree and regrets not having killed more people yeah. there's the no amount, regret yeah. and and the 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 way in which the canadian media is bending over backwards you're right to make this an outlier because if they don't do that it is an indictment on us as a country 
And nobody wants to have that conversation. No, because it's uncomfortable. Because it's uncomfortable. And Canadians don't do discomfort. The worst thing in the world for Canada and Canadians is discomfort and awkwardness. (gasps) Oh, my God. You know what I mean? And there's this... There is this this sensitivity and this this knee jerk reaction to shut that conversation down mm-hmm. as soon as it comes up, but it'll keep coming up. Of the course. more you shut it down, yeah. is the more it'll keep coming up. So, in light of our last story, where are these women? The glass ceiling, glass cliff women. Where are right. they? If they're in yeah. power, in control of what we see and the coverage and the media coverage, mm. where are they? Yeah, I mean, I, th- yeah, I, 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 I know again, I'm, I'm trying, you, but I'm not. No, 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 it's fine. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like why I'm, I'm this wouldn't like garner, because like it's got it, like this story's got everything, you know? With, it like, does. Mass murders. Don't people love that shit? Like, yeah. why, like, terrorism like a you know young guy looks like normal seeming enough or shouldn't we all be shocked that he would like because it looks he looks like their kids that's the whole thing like intrigue like it should is it like just in terms of like publishing stories like there's no end of salacious things to write and yet like no one gives a shit and i think it is yeah it's because the victims are not just muslim like like they're just not dark, valued no, as but dark people. skin and black, mu- like black Muslim. Yeah. Yep. And like in the heartland of Quebec, based in like Quebec City, so rem- like again, a bit culturally removed from the rest of Canada. So easy to like dissociate with mm-hmm. them. Like not an ounce of compassion really is shown. And when people say that they're, you know, donating to humble because they're compassionate and empathetic and it like it's like that's low-hanging fruit you know like some anyone dies i'm like yeah that it like yes that's sad it's a lot harder to be like not harder but it's like you really need to show up in these types of cases that like do rattle things for you canadians don't show up for people of color that is the material point so i was listening to white canadians i mean sorry i was listening to jen gerson and justin link's podcast oh god (laughs) Sorry, was that was that uh, just a yeah? I'm not a fan of Jen Gershon, to be honest. But whatever. uh, Go on. And she was saying they were talking about Humboldt briefly. Um, They talked about the Nora situation, and um, basically, Jen was like, "Oh well, you know, um, parents now like can relate to like what like how terrifying it is to like send your child on a bus and." You know, worried that it might get into an accident and they'll, their kid is going to die. Okay, that was a freak accident. Yeah. And that happens like once every 10 years. And it was a freak event, the mosque shooting. And they're both equally terrifying. And sending your child to church, to mm-hmm. Sunday school, should just be as terrifying because you have no idea. Yeah. I mean, like, it b- could happen. But anywhere. here's the here's so the like, like the race. Like, yeah. But yeah. But no, for, like, no. it's very white and very privileged to totally. be like, oh, like I have to send my kid on a bus. Therefore, I'm scared that they're going to get into a car accident. Totally. Whereas people of color have to be live with that fear for any minor activity they do. Yeah. Yeah. Being seen walking in and out of a store looking the wrong way and like or a Starbucks or a Starbucks or 
or in LA Fitness. And I mean, <laughs> one of the, one of the yeah. folks who was at the mosque and survived the shooting says he everywhere he goes, he looks around to yep. plan an exit strategy, yep. see how many people he could carry out should something happen. Well, and then there's the people who go they go to a fucking movie and get shot up. Like, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But but I think you're right. Like the there there for ah, fuck I don't know how to say this, but. Just I think saying. for <laughs> I think for people of privilege, let's cast that broadly because it could be anyone. Sure. Who've lived comfortable lives. You're we're like baffled. We're baffled by like we're like more like more like issues of mortality for us are like, oh, my God, this person got this like awful disease and then they died or like, yeah, they get into a car accident. Isn't life so fleeting? Isn't it so tragic? Whereas like I think for like many people living in so many parts of the world, like mortality and death and like, you know, these kinds of like the precarity of life and existing is like ever present, whether it's because of like environmental factors or like actual like coming from like war-torn countries or like civil strife or whatever else like or poverty or abject poverty where like you're you know people do you know relatives whatever die because of completely preventable diseases it's like it's like you we think about that right it's the like, privilege of escape yeah like well yeah. just you never are confronted with these things mm-hmm. you never have to think about them and it's like i just think of all those people who want to go to the cottage every fucking weekend now that it's you know I feel spring <laughs> um <laughs> yeah you know what i mean i'm joking i, <laughs> I totally feel you but like i look i enjoy cottage here <laughs> but you know, it's this, oh, we're opening up the cottage and we're going to yes, the cottage yeah, and da 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 And I'm like, I'm like, first of all, why are you promoting social isolation, mm. especially for your kids? Your kids should be, you know, mixing with different kids. By playing street hockey. Street hockey, shit <laughs> like that. You know what I mean? Rounding up the neighborhood kids, running exactly. around barefoot like we did. Exactly. <laughs> because... Uh, you know, this idea that, you know, of isolation and, and being able to be isolated, I don't think is very healthy. Mm-hmm. I mean, if like, can you imagine if he grew up with around some Muslim students, black and brown Muslim students, some black students or kids, some white kids, some, you know, and if he actually was exposed Mm -hmm. to and it it would become normal for him it would nor i i think i think so too i think to a great degree it's not a guarantee no it's not but like this is someone who read a tweet from justin trudeau saying we should welcome like asylum seekers and it was like who the fuck are these random people let's shoot them up i've never had to interact with them they're so foreign and like every sense to me that it's to reduce the idea of the other Mm -hmm. yes but some of the conversation that's been happening with the roseanne reboot is that roseanne is tolerant of her non-binary grandchild and what whatever and they're like oh "Oh." and the black kid is a prop (laughs) you're like sure is there a black i don't know yeah she is yeah and and she's (laughs) fine with them because they're special they belong to her so she's got like some sort of like relationship with them and they're not like I see what you're saying. People. I see what you're saying. So like if you know a black or a brown or a Muslim person, that doesn't necessarily change your view. No, no, of, of, of course. No, 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 not, not a 
but like many but and a conversation that is and yeah. a community of people who aren't all white and i'm not talking about the tokenization of those people i'm saying that let's just say um there's a reason the toronto white guy is different from all other white guys in the sense that you know for example i've met like i feel like i'm going down a shitty road here but i'll go for it <laughs> all in all in um i say i use the toronto white guy as a as a sort of um i guess symbol and i don't mean the one from rosedale i mean the ones from scarborough <laughs> you know what i mean my point is that people and this is not just white people but people who grow up with communities of color and I say communities instead of tokenized single people who represent a color, mm -hmm. right? There is a different way they even communicate with you. They communicate with you not in an awkward sort of weird, I've never, like this adjustment. Yeah, yeah. There isn't this adjustment that needs, it's, they talk to you like people. Mm -hmm. Like you're just people. And I don't get that a lot in Ottawa. I'll be honest with you. I mean, it's funny the looks that I get when I'm with my boyfriend and I'm just like, really? It's like 2018. We're not over this yet. But these are people who have never been exposed, right? And so I bring up the isolation of the cottage because that's just feeding into it. Mm -hmm. And these are people that are going to be somebody's manager one day. Or, you know what I mean? <laughs> Like, that's what I'm saying is that they are going to have to be able to deal with commune people of color and they don't know how. Yeah. So that's my point. Um, there is a study in, in the top criminology journal, and I, which I haven't read, but uh, the abstract says that uh, undocumented immigration does not increase violence. Rather, the relationship between undocumented immigration and violent crime is generally negative, although not significant. So undocumented immigrants, refugees. They just don't want to get caught yeah. being undocumented. Because so they're not going to do. They're not going to rock the boat. No, they're not going to do anything out of whack. Yep. It's more, it's more the homegrown fuckers that we have to be concerned about. And this isn't going to be the first kid. We're going to have a few. I feel like we're going to have a few more of these because apparently nobody wants to call out the right wing. And I think part of it has to do with politics and the West mm -hmm. and, you know, all of that stuff, too. Um, but nobody wants to call them out. Nobody wants to call. They'll call out the rebel sort of, but not even that. We should be talking about how much right-wing political influence is in the mainstream, to be honest. Look at Stephen Harper's tweet the other day. Supporting, Ooh, well, Stephen Harper tweeted out, Oh yeah, support for a far-right um, politician who was just elected in, I want to say, I can't remember, the Eastern Europe somewhere. It might have been Poland. Um, but... He apparently Stephen Harper is part of some global conservative elite um, union 
that that the ones even, that meet in the woods randomly yeah, once a year and they have those we, whatever you know what in, <laughs> at their cottage. <laughs> no, it's like this whole cultish thing. I think he was I like, do. yeah, it, it all, yeah. It sounds very I wish I could ideologically. It it's very like stonemasons. Yeah, like, it's it like sounds also very stone cutters. Girls. Yeah. <laughs> Logan forever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, they do stunts. They jump off uh, cliffs with uh, yeah. parachutes. For but sure. but but these ideas didn't come from yeah. nowhere. They come from our elected leaders. I mean, I was just like, <laughs> like I really didn't know that it it, and nobody wants to talk about it. Yet I'm supposed to pay money for these media people, like no, for, to, sure. I for mean, these I want... for these journals and magazines and newspapers. I don't think so. I mean, people should be asking like Andrew Shear what he's going to do differently in terms of how he speaks about That's these issues, right. not to incite this kind of extremism. We should be or or yeah. whatever else, right? Like how we're but like those are legit questions. Yes. Like this person was clearly informed, and you see it like not just Twitter, but even his own like his own uh, confession and also his testimony speaks to the fact that he derived his views from news coverage. And he was, I think, a political science student or something like that. He was engaged in conservative party activism on campus and like was was a was an active like political right winger. So he is part of their flock in some way. And it's like, how is your messaging and how are you adjusting your messaging to because I mean, look at people are on top of like fucking Jugmeet Singh to denounce all manner of terrorism that he's That's like, a never great been point. like, you know, has never espoused is completely like not part of his brand. And yet he is like suddenly culpable for anyone who shares a different view who may yeah, or may just not like, have attended an yeah. event that he may or may not have been. It's like. Just complete nonsense. I feel like, you know, with the Jagmeet Singh thing, I feel like he was at a barbecue or something. <laughs> and somebody's cousins showed up. Like, this well, is what I think of it. You know what I mean? Like, the allegation, it's not even that he was, he was at a rally where people had separatist views, not necessarily, like, ex- or, like or whatever. I mean, we don't need to rehash that. Yeah. But it's total. I can think it's completely, like. Or the Air India bombing. But it's, I mean, there's a complete. Yeah connection to like how much we've like gone after him yeah i know people have made the comparison to andrew Shear denouncing right wingers but i think this is even more apt because you had a specific event you had someone who was like clearly responding His communications yeah person was from the rebel so was one of the founders of the rebel why that's not being talked about totally is beyond me you're right about jagmeet singh and again this is because you know white canadians are okay when there's one of you they're not okay if there's more we all or turning up yeah. yeah or if you're in a position of power mm-hmm. then they're not so jazzed about you know mm-hmm. that that's a great uh, segue to our last topic for this week in feminism. So if you've been on the internet this past week, you've almost certainly heard about this. Um, Rashawn Nelson and his business partner, Dante Robinson, were approached at their local, well, at a Starbucks in Philadelphia and were asked if they needed help. The 23-year-old entrepreneurs declined, s- explaining that they were just waiting for a business meeting. The men had arrived at 4.35 p.m., on a Thursday, 
for a 4.45 p.m. meeting about a real estate deal they'd been working on for months, according to an interview. Nelson had asked to use the bathroom, but it was told it was for paying customers only, so the two men sat down to wait for their business associate. An employee then came back over to ask if they wanted to order anything, but because they had bottled water with them, they declined. Uh, the 911 call uh, that led to their arrest was placed at 4.37 p.m., and the call went like, quote, Hi, I have two gentlemen at my cafe that are refusing to make a purchase or leave. I am at the Starbucks at 18th and Spruce. And by now, we all know that the, the men were arrested and spent eight hours in jail. Robinson said the police officers didn't even read them their Miranda rights. In the week since this event took place, the men have met with the Starbucks apologetic CEO and have started pushing for a lasting change of the coffee shop chain, including new policies on discrimination and ejecting customers. Starbucks will close more than 8,000 stores across the U.S. on May 29th for racial bias training. <sighs> Where to begin? I, there's so much in this story. Um, I don't know if I should start with the low-hanging fruit. Just get <laughs> yeah. in there. Like, I, I, I want to start with, first of all, I've sat in Starbucks and... I've never seen anyone leave behind the counter to go talk to someone that they didn't know. Since when does Starbucks mm -hmm. do table service? Okay. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> what she said, oh, they were approached at their table. I'm like, at a Starbucks? Yeah. That's so bizarre. I know. Also, it doesn't even seem like they were asked to leave. So uh, don't say that you would ask them to leave and they were refusing when you didn't ask them to leave and then the 911 call that was placed two minutes I was going to say the timeline is really telling after the two fucking minutes yeah and it's not like these men looked you know like I'm going to sound very asshole here and I recognize that but th they, they didn't look homeless they didn't right. look like they were coming off the street to harass people and beg them for money mm -hmm. you know they from photos looked like normal middle class people. Not when you're black, apparently. I don't know. I so mean, it's like anything else. It's like when people get stopped driving while black and they're like, yeah, you know. But this manager apparently has a every history. celebrity under the sun looks like they've robbed a car just because they or they're black. Yeah, pretty much. It doesn't matter. It like it's like appearing and presenting middle class is irrelevant. Yeah, there was a a well-known reporter, black reporter, who was detained at a security at an airport recently, mm. and I think Mr. Flight, and it was a big fucking deal. But uh, Erica, what's the low-hanging fruit? Existing while black, that's the low-hanging fruit. Uh, that's the obvious one. Um, <sighs> yeah, we talked about how some people, depending on their race, just have to live in constant fear. Of mm -hmm. feeling unsafe, mm -hmm. um, you know, instead of just having, oh, I'm worried my kid's getting on a bus and that a bus might crash. But like this is a real fear that people have, black people have, brown people have all the time. Mm -hmm. I think and this this, you know, I'm going to segue into um I think there was an article in the Toronto Star talking about how black people really don't have any safe spaces. Mm. Um, we're constantly, and I've said this before, we're constantly oscillating between white guilt and white fear. 
And this is definitely racism born out of white fear, born out of the other, born out of, um, you know, the history of slavery. All of that plays into her perceptions because this is all based on perception. And white fear is drilled into white people when it comes to people of color because they're the other. They don't belong. They don't, um, they're foreign. They're weird. They're this, they're that. I mean, this is, cla- this is what ends up happening. Also, there is a gentrification argument to be made here. And that Starbucks being the, Starbucks is kind of the symbol of gentrification. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I shouldn't say kind of, it is. Mm-hmm. You know, once a Starbucks opens in your neighborhood, you know your property prices are going up. Mm. Your property value is going up. And so when, and with gentrification brings in more middle and upper class, more upper class white people who are not, who go to the cottage every weekend in s- to isolate themselves socially and who have never grown up or been around communities of color. And so they come into the neighborhood. They're like, well, I bought this house. You're just renting, so fuck you. And then they use white supremacy to kick people out. So this is what I see playing out with the Starbucks thing is that I'm not saying that, you know, they gentrified the neighborhood. I'm sure they did at one point Mm -hmm. because that's what they do. But it's the attitude that you no longer belong because you don't represent a class or color that now does. So you need to be removed. That's the attitude. The other thing that's interesting is like the police's role specifically. Yes. Like the fact that they were handcuffed and taken away, like makes absolutely no sense in in the circumstance. I Um, hope they sue. And so, I mean, like, and I totally am here for the protests around Starbucks and the like push to get them to do something and be responsive. But like there should also be pressure on police like those like there was that's why they got an apology no for sure but like more than that like in terms of like de-escalation tactics like in what world do you handcuff someone and remove them for trespass at a like coffee shop when they just sat there like clearly that's not the definition of trespass and like you're not going to make out charges so why would you cuff and remove them do you know what I mean like there was like a million ways they could have handled that yeah you asked them to leave and which they apparently didn't do and then you keep asking them and then you try to show them out. You escort mm-hmm. them, you know, I presumably there must have been other men yeah. on the premises. Or just like, point. let's let's go talk outside. Like, you know, it's yeah. like doesn't have to be this whole thing. Um, they weren't read their rights. That's the other piece. I mean, they, you know, the fact that they had to call like brought in three police officers for this, like for just two people sitting inside a Starbucks. I it, mean, it's just completely And this ridiculous. happened in Philadelphia and you, we all, which is a predominantly like black city. It's very racist. It's and I'm rich. sure it's race. It, okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, but like you would think that they would be more attuned. It's not like, uh, I don't, <laughs> I think only because I think I don't think that police are there to protect and serve. I think they're there to protect and serve white people. They were, they, 
the police the reason we have police forces is to keep the brown and black people away from the white people that's why we have police Mm -hmm. forces so to me they're behaving like the police Mm -hmm. now this is very interesting because it happened in philadelphia and a parallel story with meek mill is happening Mm. also with the philadelphia police and courts and justice system so i mean the philadelphia police it's interesting that they have a black police chief um which again shows me that again like you can be a person of color and still participate in white supremacy but um the philadelphia police really have some questions to answer and I'm I'm so glad that media picked up on this mm-hmm. and ran with it. Mm-hmm. This is one of those cases. And considering that we're talking about media and we're and we just talked about how silent Canadian media has been with a fucking moss shooting is to me, I mean, emblematic of in a way, um, sort of in a way that that. Trump has brought, like the election of Trump has brought these issues to the forefront and people are talking about them more and we can't even talk about, you know, the difference in in reaction between Humboldt and the Moss shooting. We can't even talk about that. It's, it's, just, it's just interesting to me to see the parallel issues and how they're dealt with mm-hmm. in general by media. Although there was, I, I good on that white woman for taking the film though taking yeah. the video yeah i mean a lot of good allyship was exhibited. there was some good allyship, a lot of people yeah. who were in in the starbucks came forward as witnesses yes. um and like showed up and i think that's really great i just i just wanted to i just wanted to highlight that that yeah. that that this became such a sensation too totally. Because there was that allyship involved in it, yeah, and some bystander intervention, and some bystander right? intervention, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What do you think about Starbucks' reaction? Yeah, that, I was curious about that too. Like, what is like training for un like unconscious bias going to look like, and how is that really going to change things? And who's administering it? I just have questions, don't really have answers, but. Yeah, I'm I don't, I don't know. I think they hired th- some quote unquote prominent people to do the training, mm-hmm. but it's not clear yet. Okay. Also, I, I want to get back to the training, but I am just waiting for all of the privileged white people who are very upset that their Starbucks is fucking closed. Oh, they already started. And the inconvenience it's gonna cost <laughs> them. Oh, they already started. Fuck off. They're on Starbucks Facebook page bitching and whining like the bitches they are. It hasn't even happened yet. Yeah, I know. And Starbucks, I got to say, shout out to Starbucks social media manager, okay? Because they have actively been responding to everybody who's been complaining. And that can't be easy. I know how much time that takes. But um, white... um, feelings are more important than justice Mm -hmm. we always know this so you know i i i credit starbucks for standing their ground i really do think they handled they handled the pr not perfectly but masterfully um except in that robin or not robin what's her name oprah's best friend gail gail king King interviewed starbucks ceo johnson is his name 
Steven or Mike or whatever. <laughs> um, white guy name? Yeah, basically. Uh, <laughs> Heck so. And um, what happened? He said, da 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 And then he said something about the manager, okay, who no longer works at the store. Fire. Um, and she felt pain too, or she felt bad too. And I was like, and that's when you lost me. Because mm-hmm. fuck her feelings. Not only that, apparently she has a history of being racist to black employees. Hmm. Should have been fired a long time ago is what you're saying. Yeah. If Starbucks really wanted to talk about race, remember when they had that? Yes, that they had that campaign initiative. where talk to me about, yeah, let's talk, talk to about, me about race. race. Why the buttons. fuck aren't they talking about it in their own damn organization? Yeah. It's the same thing, like, uh, you know... Clean up your own shit first. But but that's why, like, this moment of, like, talking about issues around race has, like, again, it's like capitalism comes in and tries to make it its own thing and, like, it, you know, take up that space. And that's essentially what that day was, like, a chance for, um, you know, Starbucks to bank on social justice issues um, and get credit where – because, you know, if where people have spoken out, they – you know, there have been some good follow through in terms of like public response and like people paying to participate in certain campaigns or whatever because of the like political angles. And Starbucks wanted to get in on that without being genuine about it or knowing what that actually means. Oh, I don't trust any corporation. Yeah. I know, I don't. No, it's, yeah, that's yeah. fair. I don't because yeah. corporate values are pretty much the same and they're not my values. Yeah. And therefore, I don't trust them. I don't trust Starbucks. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that from a PR perspective, they did a great job. Now, uh, but, however, aside from the PR, you know, um, they, you know, I, I just wonder, I wonder if they're going to change any policies or processes or even hiring practices and that's going to be a really interesting to see how this plays out over time. Because Starbucks is also in danger of being that, you know, not not progressive. Mm. Starbucks is very Portland progressive, isn't it? And I think of Portland progressive as you say the right things. Yes, you want to be an ally. But when it comes right down to it, you really don't have any skin in the game. And therefore can backpedal whenever you want to. If somebody asks me, are you still going to do go to Starbucks? Yeah. <laughs> like, and the reason is, number one, I have, they're great for business meetings. <laughs> so They'll let you sit there for a really long they, time if well, you look right. If you look right, and apparently I look okay. Plus, they know me at that Starbucks. And secondly, I really like their blonde Americanos. I mean, here's the thing about That's Starbucks. It. They do treat generally their employees well with the like some mm-hmm. aberrations here and there. Yeah. But like people are like do receive benefits and have good hours and yeah. whatever else. And yeah. like I think that goes a long way. Um, and, you know, in comparing them to some other even local institutions, mm-hmm. I've chosen to go to Starbucks. But I mean, yeah, because I'm not going to Bridgehead. Definitely not going to Bridgehead because they treat I I don't I mean, want to I don't want to patronize a place that's known to treat its staff like crap. Yeah, and so that is and committed an even worse. Oh, don't even talk to me about Abdirman Abdi, okay? Because I was just like, 
I mean, I mean I I would, we'd be remiss not to mention it in I, the I'm context of the yes, situation yes, yes. because that's what happens when you call police, honestly, in situations like this and talk about a, a CEO defending a, an employee. I mean, they essentially were, you know, bent over backwards to defend the uh, the poor frazzled employee who was just yeah. trying to. Uh, you know, maintain the decorum of the store, protect like just complete utter nonsense. Well, what I, I, yeah, and, it and was then and then her nonsense. and then the CEO of Bridge Hedges for people who don't remember, and you should absolutely stop going there because they're complete garbage humans who run it. But I'm not even holding back now. I'm gonna, I love I don't it. I give a fuck. <laughs> I, I'm smiling at Aaron that right CEO now. Is I was like, yay, an our trash Amy human has bloomed. <laughs> Look, I've been on this for years. I know. Okay? I'm, I'm, I'm teasing. Convinced yeah, my entire workplace to stop going to the name. I got Go, dragged girl. to a bridgehead the other day and I made someone pay for me because I wouldn't give him my money. <laughs> I was like, yes, yeah, I kind of do like want it. that gluten free banana bread, but I really I can't pay for it. I really feel weird being seen here. And I'm like, I'll just buy banana bread. I'm like, OK, um, but no, I mean, they after that incident where like. He, I mean, he the man died from like police brutality. Mm. Like, let's not like mince words yeah. here. That was a fucking murder in the streets. It was a murder in right? the streets. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The CEO of Bridgehead then went around and said and was and was asked and was pushed by the public. Would you offer training to employees in terms of how to de-escalate situations like this? Because you have someone with a mental health issue who, you know, something happens, whatever. What oh, like, how do you address that? And her response was, this is something that would happen one in a billion. Like, the, the odds of this happening is one in a billion. <gasps> it's not one in a billion. It just fucking happened in, in, like, in Ottawa on your watch. And then she says, we have a high turnover rate of employees, so I don't know that it would be beneficial to do that training. So first of all, she's admitting that her workplace does not sustain employees longer. Mm -hmm. And she said six to eight months at <gasps> a time, which is, like, quite, like, I mean, That's if you if you were if your turnover is six to eight months, I understand some people are students, but there are places in this town that have like, you know, full time lifelong baristas like you yeah. should be striving to have people who work there for a long time. I know people who worked at Bridgehead for a long time. So that like I think that's bullshit. But even if you do have a high turnover rate, you should be looking at the reasons why that you is. You want to have the best employees that you possibly can. Right. But even if the odds are like I'm not buying this one in a billion, one in a million, whatever the fuck she said, even if it's like one in 10,000 chance that a situation like this might happen like the man fucking died on your watch because you call police you like your your staff overstated the situation and you are a street level business that has all sorts of people coming in and out mm -hmm. it's who the gentrification are in different, like of in different states and conditions yeah. and whatever else and they may be having a mental health crisis in the moment that they walk into your store and you should be equipped and if the risk is that they fucking die then you should offer the training. It's literally the least you could do, if nothing else, than to like clear your conscience. And instead of that, this woman like writes this poem and then recites it on fucking CBC radio. You can find it. You can Google her. You can read this shitty ass poem where she says, my struggle as a woman is like Abdi's struggle. And he and I are the oh, same. Just some utter fucking white fuck privilege nonsense. Off. So and if you, you know what? Now I'm not, now I'm no, never, never going back never to go that into place. a fucking okay. bridgehead. I haven't been to bridgehead in, Honestly, ever since I I decided that you know there's a certain Starbucks that I'll meet clients at da 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 da, yeah. I I was like fuck Bridgehead. One of I remember being at um, anti racism anti something you know me I I just you know I was somewhere anyway. 
there was somebody from, um, I think he was uh, from the Somali community, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was Somali. Um, a couple of women from the Somali community said, do you still go to Bridgehead? And I said, yeah. And they're like, we don't go to Bridgehead anymore. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, shit, why the fuck am I going to Bridgehead? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. The, there's a bridge. The Bridgehead where this happened is literally 30 seconds from my house. It has changed mm-hmm. that community. Mm-hmm. That is a community that's also going through gentrification. Mm-hmm, totally. yeah. Hardcore. This is a community that used to be um, working class. You know, there used it used to be you know a really um, lower income to working class neighborhood. It still was when I moved in there, mm-hmm. and then a bridgehead went in, and boom, all of the gentrification, the higher prices happened, and. I this is one of the tensions that we're only now starting to talk about when it comes to economic revival. And I wish that more mayors would think about this before they start, you know, jumping on Amazon's lap and doing a fucking Hmm. dance. Okay, like like these are real struggles and you know by the way that ceo of bridgehead went on cbc i did see that Mm -hmm. i saw part of it because all she said was well this had nothing to do with race and i said and i turned it off because i couldn't i couldn't because i as a community member was still sort of like exposed to the rawness of it and for her to sit there and fucking say that, I want to kick her in the face. It's I was just it's so really angry. ignorant. And just to go back to the Starbucks analogy, like the idea of like talk, like let's talk about race or whatever their campaign was. Like Bridgehead trades on this idea that they're a fair trade company that is like here yep. for like social and community issues, mm-hmm. and like they make you feel like you are beholden to them. Like part of your civic duties to go to a fucking Bridgehead. It's not. It's not because they clearly have don't have the community's interest in mind. They're not. It's fair trade for everybody but racialized people and black people, apparently. Um, and if and, and not for their workers either, because they're against the minimum wage. They, you know, want to move to automate like, uh, you know, automation, like, uh, you know, and they're going out of their way to, like, take public stances against minimum wage. So, like, you know, don't you're not beholden to go there. And like but they they use their corporate branding to manipulate our like you know associations with them and like our politics right well the other thing too is is i don't like the atmosphere at bridgehead it's not very welcoming it's not very open it's full of old people it's conservative as fuck you feel like if you raise your voice at a bridgehead like the school teacher is gonna come and smack (laughs) you i mean it's not exactly it's just not conducive for open dialogue in general and i wonder if that is a reflection of the owner like I, I ha- like I hate the atmosphere at Bridgehead. I feel like I feel like some old person is gonna look down their nose at me and be like, "Shh," well, because they're just reading a fucking paper. You know what I mean? It's not. Yeah. I don't. I don't particularly like the coffee ever since I discovered the blonde roast, <laughs> and so f- and I don't like their civic practices. So fuck them. Bye, girl. Bye. That's my thing. Well, I guess that wraps up this week of feminism. (laughs) 
Now we're moving on to rent and receipts. This is where we each bring a story to share with the others. And uh, I guess kind of talk about it. Cool. So I'm going to start off um, our discussion drawing attention to a Toronto star piece uh, that is um, about uh, the sad and unfortunate um, revelation of Bruce MacArthur, the serial killer in Toronto's uh, eighth victim. So this is the person most recently discovered from uh, the remain like from uh, Bruce MacArthur's property. Um, there were remains of him found and then a photograph that Bruce MacArthur had um, of this man. Um, and uh, Toronto Star does a really good in-depth piece about who he was. So his name was uh, Krishna Kumar Kenna Garatam. Uh, he is Tamil um, and came over to Canada as a refugee on the um, uh, boat that uh, came in 2010 uh, from Sri Lanka, the MV Sunsea. So I don't know if you remember that story. I think it's very clear in my consciousness because it was, uh, was a lot of backlash, and this is like peak Harper era backlash towards refugee claimants. Um, and also to um, that conflict in particular, a lot of like misunderstanding and um, in fact, like racism and, and like terrorism accusations lobbed against anyone of Tamil descent um, because of their nationalist struggle. Um, but in any case, um, this um, man um, had come over um, at that time and uh, police like recent like recently circulated the picture that they had found from Bruce MacArthur's remains and he was identified by extended family who realized uh, that they, that he had, um, that that was in fact him and that he was the recent victim when in fact, when they had thought for many years that he was actually just in hiding because his refugee claim had been denied. So of the 500 people who were on the boat, um, I think about, um, a hundred some odd um, of them were denied their refugee status uh, coming into Canada. Um, and we know um, that um, Krishna Kumar had uh, began to live uh, like doing odd jobs, living on the street and was under house potentially like at the church at um, a ch like a church on church in Wellesley in the, in the gay village where uh, Bruce MacArthur committed his, his many serial uh, murders um, and it's just like such a tragic story um, because it really exposes what happens when people are um, the become undocumented, what happens to um, refugee claimants who face the threat of deportation. Um, I think there's a lot of questions that we should be asking about why his claim was even denied um, when so many others had their claims accepted from from that same passage. And also the fact that he had had a, f a brother who had died in the in the conflict back home um, and clearly um, I mean, shouldn't it, like, you know, would have faced um, great hardship to go back to Sri Lanka. Um, so it, it's such a. Um, uh, good, good profile though that the stars like gone out of their way um, to uh, you know travel to Sri Lanka to go to the his um, hometown to speak to his family members to his uh, his mom and his cousin um, and his mom who he would send money back to until he disappeared in 2015 when when um, they believe he was murdered they speak to his father shrines set up in his home visited like many visitors going. 
um, to, to pay respects. But just for so many years, his family had no idea where he was and assumed that he was in hiding because of his refugee status. I think it highlights, um, yeah, again, the precarity of, of folks like that. And it's a it's an important reminder because um, there are probably many other people in this country who are living undocumented and living in such like um, isolated ways and are susceptible in these ways. Um, his family like didn't put out an alert that he was missing because they were um, afraid for his safety from the p from the Canadian state and like being and of deport the threat of deportation. Um, and uh, so I think that's really. Um, uh, something like we should keep in keep in mind, be critical of, and and it's an another reminder of how long people also spend in detention centers. The uh, folks from the um, MV Sunsea uh, ship that came over in 2010 spent 18 months um, in a detention center in Vancouver before they were rele were re released and then assessed for the refugee claims. Um, and there are people who spend many years, even longer than that. There's a recent case of, of someone spending five, six years in a detention center without a hearing, without any processing of their refugee claim. Um, and so the, like these aren't anomalies. It's actually really commonplace. And like, why wait until someone like this becomes uh, a victim because they're ignored or neglected by society um, and have no safe place to turn and then end up in, you know, become, and it's, it's true of many other of Bruce MacArthur's victims that they either lived in fringe ways, like on the fringes, weren't able to go to police, weren't, and, you know, when, when the murders were reported, police completely disregarded them. Um, and like, again, speaking to like police as not being a safe place for um, for many people to turn to many people in, in some of the most vulnerable positions. Um, but I am impressed with the coverage and I think it bears noting and, and celebrating. And I'll note too that CBC printed a whole uh, article about, um, uh, about this man, about uh, Krishna Kumar um, and, and Tamil. Uh, so that readers could oh, read it right, in Tamil. Right, um, I did I see that like tweet. Really, yeah. really powerful mm -hmm. um, and important, and reaching into communities where there are people who um, may, may, you know, may be residing either abroad or in Canada as well, very well, who who don't speak uh, English or can or read in Tamil better and, and can access this news and, oh, and be sure. aware of it as well. So for sure, I think um, one of the interesting things I find. Okay, we haven't talked a lot about undocumented workers on this podcast. I do realize that that is, um, for whatever reason, it there's no real reason. Um, I I find I find it interesting. Uh, to be honest, I don't think the average person or the average Canadian knows how the refugee system works. Mm -hmm. And what kind of hum, um, human conditions people live in. Because I don't think they w would believe that it's Canada. Totally. Absolutely. And I think that that's where sort of the, um, the removal of this story, um, I guess from... I don't want to call it a removal, but... There's a reason the Toronto police didn't really give a shit. And mm -hmm. it's because the people, like you said, the people who, the victims are marginalized. And we don't care about marginalized victims. Um, 
at me if you want to. <laughs> I don't care. Um, but it's true. I think the Bruce MacArthur story, and there was, was it, I can't remember which publication, but they were talking about Bruce MacArthur and the the photo they used mm-hmm. had a rainbow behind it. He, and it was like he was in Niagara he, Falls. Yeah, it's him at Niagara Falls on holiday. On holiday. Yeah. So you humanize the and I'm I had to look twice to see who they it's were talking unreal. about unreal. because it was so unreal. And when you have that kind of lens placed on everything in media, yeah, in Canada, that's the result that you get is that well I can I can pick off people of color I could pick off um, trans people I could pick off. Um, um, LGBTQ people of lower income. I can do all that because nobody will care. So it's just reinforced by the media that nobody will care, which is which just means that you'll get more victims of color, and then nobody will care, and it will continue. We do treat perpetrators, white perpetrators, differently than those of color, and I think that needs to change. And I mean, we talk about the people who are abusive to their girlfriends and women and talk about them as troubled and can we just stop please doing this like i don't think it's hard is it hard hmm. i don't know seems easy we should ask those women at the top of the media pyramid no. <laughs> i'm just saying i'm bringing it back mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm just like it's all connected it's all connected yeah my rent and receipts this week is the story of U.S. Senator Tammy Duckworth and how she just gave birth to a baby girl 10 days ago. I know that name. She is the senator, Democratic senator from Illinois who also served in the Iraq War and uh, lost both legs in combat. Right. Okay, gotcha. She is the first sitting U.S. senator to give birth while in office. Senator Duckworth gave birth to her second daughter April 9th. And I've mentioned this before on the podcast, I think, um, but I know that we've talked about this offline. Um, So Duckworth proposed a new rule to the Senate to, quote, bring the Senate into the 21st century by recognizing that sometimes new parents also have responsibilities at work. So basically she was introducing a rule to change the Senate to allow for her to bring her daughter onto the Senate floor. Mm. Cool. Um, So that she can breastfeed her and take care of her because she's 10 days old. Um, and so this was passed unanimously and of course it was passed unanimously. I mean, in, in, yes, um, these are her colleagues, so I can't see how they, they vote against it. Like anyway, the whole point (laughs) is that, uh, this wasn't while passed unanimously, it wasn't without criticism from both Democrats and Republicans. Um, but these concerns were largely based on generational, a generational divide than a partisan divide. Okay. Um, oh, those baby boomers that I ran off on the last episode. No, no. We're not even talking about baby boomers. We're talking about like the octogenarians Ugh! and the septuagenarians, uh, the like greatest generation. The Orrin Hatches of the world. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And 
the male senators were concerned that this would disrupt Senate decorum. And the U.S. Senate requires members to be in the Senate chamber to be eligible to vote, which is why John McCain, being at home in Arizona, mm-hmm. isn't teleworking because he can't vote because he's not in Washington in the chamber. Okay. So because of the tight margin um, in the chamber between Democrats and Republicans, you know, Tammy Duckworth wants to be there for all the votes to make sure that the Democrats' voices are heard. Right. Um, so, of course, you know, Orrin Hatch, who's a million years old, <laughs> says, but what if there are 10 babies on the floor of the Senate? Oh, my God. <laughs> then there are <laughs> fucking 10 babies on the floor of the Senate. Next. <laughs> uh, Senator Pat Robert- Roberts. Oh, said, gosh. <laughs> said that while he would not oppose the change, he just doesn't think it's necessary. Uh, Tom Cotton, a Republican from Arkansas. Oh, no, not him. Said that he would not <laughs> mind the new rule, but since some senators might mind, quote, the cloakroom might be a good compromise. <gasps> Which is just like projecting your own views and like onto someone else. Well, Tom Cotton is just trash. Yes. He's uh, just a trash human being. But, uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar, who is a Democrat from Minnesota, shot down the suggestion of the cloakroom because it makes, you know, Senator Duckworth vote from the cloakroom, but the space in the cloakroom is not accessible to wheelchairs. So he was like, oh, we just go vote over there, but you actually can't get in there because you need a wheelchair. Right, because you got your legs blown off in Iraq. Yeah. Um, So she... Senator Klobuchar says, yes, you can vote from the doorway of the cloakroom, but how is she going to get in the cloakroom when it's not? Oh, my gosh. This is just such fuckery. This conversation should never have happened. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like, just pass the bill and shut the fuck up. Yeah. (laughs) Like, honestly, I don't understand. I mean, the good thing is, is that they passed the rule and now babies can be brought onto the floor of the Senate. But like this type of pearl clutching from these fucking men don't they have better no they don't apparently (laughs) sorry things to do is that what you're gonna say they need to they need to control their president okay they need to stop talking about people in cloak rooms and leaving babies in cloak rooms and start fucking controlling the the clusterfuck that is their president and that administration okay yeah you broke it you bought it yeah but uh senator duckworth did put out a statement after they had passed it being very classy, and the statement read, quote, by ensuring that no senator will be prevented from performing their constitutional responsibilities simply because they have a young child, the Senate is leading by example and sending the important message that working parents everywhere deserve family-friendly workplace policies. Setting what example? (laughs) Well, well, the rule rule passed and people will see uh, Senator Duckworth going to work with her her baby, and I think that's like huge... Fair um, enough. The value. optics are, are great. Um, yeah. And of course, that's not going to be true for every workplace. You're not going to be able to bring your babies. But the idea that because of the nature of her work, she needs to be there and vote is very specific and, and tailored family accommodation will be important. I mean, we've had this discussion here in Canada. I don't know about having babies on the floor of the house. I know Nikki Ashton takes her twins to uh to work into the house but i don't know that they sit in the chamber with her mm. um but when we've had those discussions at at the um 
uh, Ontario at Queen's Park, they've like talked about tra- and they passed different rules to for family accommodation. So ending the sitting time, so you don't have these like votes that go on into the middle of the night. Mm. People can go home at like six or seven o'clock, and 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 there are a number of other changes that came in with that. Um, but I mean. This stuff, th- like this stuff, matters. It has the value of appearing to matter, but it's also about like bringing people in and attracting the right folks. Um, and if you feel like you know the like elected office isn't right for you because you've never seen yourself represented, um, or be- like specifically either as a mother or someone who wishes to have that, you know, down the line, um, you may not consider running because it doesn't seem to drive. But I in just fact, feel it ought to. Yeah. I just feel like this is. I, I appreciate, I guess for me, I guess my problem is I just don't appreciate the little steps as much as I should. But, but and, yeah, yeah. And no, I'm just, I'm yeah. just saying that that's probably yeah. just me. Yeah. And, you know, I, it's not that I don't think it's a good thing. I just think that, um, it seems to be kind of. I, you know what, I guess leadership also through example is important. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it and, might, and, and it turning might... the consciousness of lawmakers in terms of what happens in their own chamber um, and making things accessible may help them in legislating later for other bodies. Um, but I mean, talking about your workplace first is always like beneficial and, and, I mean, obviously the reaction is questionable, but I think people are, are coming uh, like are coming around and the fact that it passed to thinking about these things. I mean, other ex- and it presents it so many different ways. Like it's just like political spaces were, were not des- they were designed for people who had a partner at home who could look after the family. Like there's the travel considerations is a big one in Canada. For well, it was M- designed for men. For MPs. Yeah. yeah, it was designed for men. Um, you know, like another famous example in Canada is like they used to not allow the travel allowance to apply to your children. It would only apply to like a spouse. Mm. And so when like Senator Pat Carney or maybe she was a minister at the time, like wanted to travel from like Vancouver to Ottawa or whatever, BC to Ottawa, they wouldn't allow like they wouldn't comp her for her kids travel to come with her Mm. during the sitting periods. And then eventually they changed that rule because it was like seen to actually like you know harm, harm women women and more than men and, yeah mm-hmm. it's not to say that men shouldn't want to bring their like their kids out no, but or they whatever, have the but it had this only the spouse yeah. allowance and yeah. it was like really restrictive yeah. right yeah so i mean I, I i you know it's not earth shattering but i think it's really important fair enough my rent and receipts has to do with um a pretty moving article by juno diaz um who is a Dominican American Pulitzer Prize winner, novelist, um, for his novel *The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow*? Uh, Diaz currently teaches at MIT and is the fiction editor of the Boston Review. His recent essay in the New Yorker told of childhood sexual rape and the trauma he lived with all his life from this experience. Um, have you read this essay? It's mm-hmm. brilliant and moving mm-hmm. and tragic at the same time. I am using um, an article from Black Youth Project that talks about Juno Diaz, the Me Too movement, 
and how men traumatize women on their way to healing. And I think that this is just such um, a piece that is so true. Uh, The author says, I just read Juno Diaz's essay about his childhood rape and the years of sexual, romantic and relationship trauma and toxic patriarchal behavior that followed. I applaud him opening up and owning to some real dark, deep trauma on a significantly large and visible international platform as a black Caribbean man from the oldest African diaspora. And yet, as many black women have pointed out, it is hard to hear him dissect and discuss the harm he went on to cause towards the nameless black and brown women he dated on his journey. While dealing with the effects and aftermath of his assault, women were reduced to objects and now are mere footnotes in his journey, operating as tools to animate and move him forward at a time when he needed life and love and couldn't make such decisions for himself. Mere testaments, lessons of what his messed up behavior lost him. Um, Black and brown women, trans and queer included, in families, relationships, and friendships with traumatized and fucked up men are always having to be the mules and footnotes and the main beneficiaries of violence and bullshit in their journey and trajectories. I think... Oh, this is so true and not talked about enough. I think this goes for women in general, um, but mostly, but black and brown women especially are encouraged to be that, um, especially when it comes to things like the struggle of love and Mm -hmm. ride or die Mm -hmm. chicks and et cetera, et cetera. Um, That kind of messaging that's, that's really directed towards black and brown women has been detrimental to us and I remember reading the essay and thinking somewhat the same like you empathized with him I felt compassion for him but I remember thinking what about these women Mm -hmm. and what has he left behind as a legacy for them Mm -hmm. Um, and I mean you know if you've read his work it's clearly like influenced by his own experiences and he's dissenters and writes from the perspective of women and racialized women um in every case um if i recall correctly and and so there is a reflection and a struggle there on his part but i yep. don't know and but there's also a benefiting and profiting from those stories and experiences that i don't know um if in his personal life he's been able to put that back to people and what you get in his essay is that he struggled for a long time and avoided dealing with it. And even when people asked him bluntly, you know, you write so clearly about uh, sexual violence and hurt in your essays. Is this coming from a personal experience and him saying, you know, no, I, no, it wasn't and wanting to kind of decompartment or compartmentalize these things and, um, and not wanting to deal with them. So I, yeah, I mean, it's um, clear, like, you know, clearly a lot of struggling with toxic masculinity Um, but not sure that it's kind of gone back to empowering the women who've had to like live through that. I like your point about, you know, we almost encourage this in people. We romanticize these things. We romanticize people's mental health and anguish um, and the kind of, um, uh, especially with writers and with artists 
and we, we do that. We've seen that a lot with a lot of this, um, folks who've, who are the aggressors, not just the, the victims of violence like yeah. Juno, but, um, you know, the, the Louis C. case of the world where people are, you know, or the Woody Allens where people often are like pointed the fact that they're clearly attuned to something and, and look at them, you know, working out these issues and you're like, but still they're committing <laughs> acts of violence, it's, right? Like it's the t- tortured artist. Tor- totally. Yeah. 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 And we make excuses. For yeah. Them. And we try, we, we're still seeing that now. Yeah. Um, following the meet the wake of the me too. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got Louis CK. We've got Mario Batali who are looking to make moves to have their comeback. Mm-hmm. And we posted on our Facebook page a, a story about this. And we need to be vigilant and not make excuses for them. Be like, oh, they, they've served their time. They've been in isolation. They've been mm-hmm. exiled for long enough. They said sorry. Mm-hmm. So let's let's welcome them back into the fold. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, just like, why do we need the Louis C. Case and the Woody Allens to write this story? I mean, people who are always talk about how Woody Allen's characters as like strong women and what, you know, the like Annie Hall's, I would rather like read a story about Annie Hall from Annie Hall's perspective. Right. Yeah. Like, or the, the stories that Juno Diaz writes, but from the perspective of the, the women who've gone through it's that. It's who owns the but, voice. But th- yeah. that's it. And, w- and we've given a lot of room to the, the male tortured artists. Exactly. We don't give much room to, um, the the Sylvia Platts of the world, for example, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I I just this idea that women are supposed to heal you on your way to um, to you know enlightenment is mm-hmm. fuckery, mm-hmm. and um, I really felt, and I I'm not saying that. He's right. He's wrong. I'm not. I'm not critiquing him in that in that way. I'm just. It's just this idea, and I don't even know if he even himself realized this. But when I read the essay, I thought um, it was. I remember him talking about his infidelity, his cheating, um, how much, yes, how much he hurt these women. But what are they left with except, you know, mere, you know, mentions on a page or Mm. digital mention Mm -hmm. or something? Not to say that they, I I just, I think, I thought a lot about their pain and how that, how he, he may be on the way to healing, but hurts women along the way Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in a way that basically could i don't know what the effects are but the effects could be detrimental Mm -hmm. absolutely and we don't think about that that's what i'm saying so that's my rent to receive i think that does it for the pod so uh follow us on social media actually Become a patron of the podcast. We have a couple patron-only pods coming up, so you'll get access to the full interviews only if you are a patron. So patreon.com slash badandbitchy. Um, send us your questions for our feminist advice column, Dear Bitches. And follow us on social media, on Twitter at badandbitchy, 
on Instagram at bad and bitchy pod on facebook.com slash bad and be podcast and email those questions and anything else you have for us to bad and be podcast. Sorry to bad and be pod at gmail.com. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. Bye. 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 Bye.